Welcome. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday, May 11th, 2022, and thanks for joining us for the 129th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. the Rock and Roll Shrink. I'm afraid to ask what's so funny. <laughs> oh, right, you missed the Peter and the Wolf. You missed you missed the I... Peter and the Wolf thing though. calls from our listeners and possibly from our mutual psychiatrists all evening during the show <laughs> at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now, a topic-relevant bit of music that is not Peter the Wolf, played by Dr. Mathis himself. (laughs) Take it away, Doc, with some good old rock and roll. There you go.
righty, as always, thank you for that. And if you don't mind, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic. Sure. So that was uh, a piece from uh, American Idiot by Green Day, which is uh, the song I Walk Alone, which uh, follows one of the characters through sort of this existential realization that he's alone and walks in the world alone, even though it would be nice to have somebody around to kind of help him out. The reality is we all, in in the words of... uh, the famous existential psychologists were born alone, we live alone, and we die alone. And it's real important to know who the heck we are while we're doing those things so that we can live most efficaciously, which is why I chose that tune for this evening's discussion. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So, as Dr. Mathis is mentioning, tonight's episode is entitled... Who are you? How we form self-identity, and obviously a nod to the who, which we will discuss in a moment. So before we begin our topic discussion, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink Recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. Well, I thought what I would do is sort of pick up where we left off last time, um, talking about uh, profilers and uh, emulators and that sort of thing. And I thought I would give a shout out to some of my favorite uh, people who do those things. Uh, last time I talked a little bit about that, and I kind of threw a couple of names out there, but <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to talk a little bit more in depth about it this evening. Uh, along with some uh, some AUXs and VSTs and that sort of thing, for all of you uh, digital uh, nerd heads out there. So as most people probably know, and, and maybe you don't, maybe I'm just you know being a nerd head myself here, but uh, when one goes into the recording studio, uh, like a real studio, not you plugged in a mini device into a computer and you know pretended like you were a studio guy or gal, uh, but when you go into a real studio, um, studios today mostly are run on digital, but some have analog and some have a mixture. Uh, of uh, recording in analog and then having a hoi, a gunvoida, while you're converting the analog to digital so that you don't have to have one of those, <laughs> you know, they're kosher, you don't have to have one of those huge-ass, uh, you know, six-inch uh, wide reel things to do splicing and stuff on. It just makes the process a whole lot easier, uh, which is why that's what I'm doing in my studio when I relocate. Uh, so I wanted to talk a, a bit about that. Because what's happened uh, as time has gone by, and I mentioned this, I think, last time, that uh, there are two uh, major players that have sort of evolved. There was four or five in the beginning, and the two major ones that are still around that I think most studios use, one or the other, and some studios may even use both, uh, are Pro Tools and Logic, which are the digital audio workstations, the DAWs, <clears throat> excuse me, they go on your computer, and those basically are the mixer boards. They're, they're the recording slash mixer boards on your screen that emulate the real deal, touch and feel it, analog boards. Now, some people have interfaces, so they have a digital interface control pad that will actually control the software uh, on the screen so that you're not having to use a mouse. And some people... Uh, have a mouse and control with the mouse, and some people have both. 
Uh, but if you're using uh, a DAW, which obviously if you run a studio, you are, you're either probably using Logic Pro, particularly if you're an Apple person like myself, or you're using Pro Tools or maybe both, depending on you know, your clientele and what you've got and your engineer. Uh, what a lot of people are doing, whether they have something like the Kemper or not, but I would suspect a lot of studios do or a lot of uh, professional musicians come in with one, uh, they have digital uh, software platforms which uh, will plug in to the DAW, and they're called plugins. And depending on whether you have a, a, a more IBM-like system or whether you have more of an Apple-like system, uh, it depends on whether they're called AUXs or VSTs or whatever. And those are the little things that go on, the dot .VST, dot .AUX things. Now, anyway, what they are is they're basically plugins that plug into the DAW. And some of them are uh, faithfully recreated uh, digital emulations of things like Neve boards uh, or famous uh, other folks who have channel strips like like a, a vocal doubler or, or an echo unit or a reverb unit or whatever. And then some of them are based on ampl famous amplifiers that you then plug in to uh, a, a DAW and your guitar player connects and plugs in through the digital emulation of an amp. Or in the case of a Kemper, you have a profile that is the actual amp that then comes out of the back of the profile and goes directly into the mix, into the physical mixer or uh, unit that connects to your computer that then runs the DAW. Um, so I want to talk about some of my favorite ones that I personally like. Uh, and, and I like them because they're just... They're ridiculously done. Uh, they're done to the nth degree. They are not cheap. Well, some of them aren't bad, actually, but some of them are not cheap. Uh, but you get what you pay for. And if you want real deal stuff that sounds really amazing, you want to spend the money up front so that your stuff doesn't sound like ass warmed over on the end. No pun intended for a change. So, <laughs> So I'll talk about the profile uh, folks, that, the vendors who sell profiles. So these are the folks who actually have, many of whom have recording studios, and will go in and find the real deal analog amplifiers and profile them and then sell the profiles for the Kemper. And my favorite folks currently that I'm aware of, um, probably the... My most favorite is definitely the Amp Factory, and I think I mentioned that last time uh, we were doing this. And <clears throat> excuse me, the Amp Factory is a uh, recording studio and mixdown uh, place, actually in uh, I think in London, definitely in the UK, but I think in London. But the man that owns it also does profiles and sells the profiles over the internet, and his profiles are just really flipping amazing, and I don't really have any other words for that. And uh, to, I, I will say that uh, without having been paid to say that, and that's true, by the way, of all of these people. I've not received any compensation from any of the people I'm going to uh, talk about tonight. I've paid for every one of these flipping programs, so uh, it's not like, oh, yeah, they sent me all this shit for free, and I have to say good things about it. Uh, survey says no. <laughs> I paid for these things, so... 
uh, the Amp Factory just has a shoot ton of profiles that are just amazing, and they sell them individually or they sell them in bundles. And depending on what kind of music you play and stuff you can buy, you can pick and choose individual profiles. You can buy them in bundle packages, which I, I did. I really liked them. I, I think I own probably every bundle the profile fa- the Amp Factory makes, which is a little frightening, but, you know, it's me. Um, <laughs> the other folks that make really good profiles, whom I really, really like, um, one is called BAG, and that stands for Bag of Amps. <laughs> and they sell some really, yeah, it's a, it's cool name, and they sell some really cool profiles that I have of of Marshalls and Fenders and and just really cool amplifiers. Uh, a company that sells great profiles of old school amp, uh, old school keyboards. So they what they that this company has done. They're also in the UK. Uh, is they have actually gone in and got the original keyboards and profiled them. So they have like uh, orchestrons, mellotrons, and all versions of mellotrons. I don't know all the names of them. There's like six or seven different varieties. They have, to have all of them. They've rebuilt the original ones, and it, it's amazing what they've done. Um, and they have, the, the name of that company is GeForce Software. Uh, and I have a lot of their stuff, uh, mostly Mellotron stuff. Their Mellotron stuff is just ridiculous. It's uh, it's disgustingly good. Uh, if you own a Kemper, uh, Kemper Rig Manager is the uh, thing that allows you to go into and download and upload your own profiles to their site. I think I mentioned that they have a uh, – once you buy a Kemper – you have access to their community uh, profiles, and it's other folks like myself and a whole lot better than I am um, making profiles and then uploading them to the site for other folks to try out and download for free. So it's a great resource if you own a Kemper. Uh, Michael Britt, who is a country guy in Nashville, um, who has been around for a long time, studio musician guy, uh, makes profiles, and he does really good profiles. And I have several of his profile packages, really like his stuff. Very helpful uh, if you have any questions about what his profile sound like. Oh, you know, here's what I do. What would you recommend me get? He's very communicative. I did that with him because I heard some of his stuff, and I was kind of like, oh, I think I might want that. Oh, and I said, hey, what would you recommend? This is what I do. And he says, no, don't get that. Get this one. This is better for what you do. And just really, really, really cool guy. Um, there's a guy that's local here to Atlanta. Uh, his name is Red Scholl. Uh, and he does really good profiles for the camper as well. Uh, it's actually, uh, uh, and, and like myself, uh, one of the uh, drug users for uh, Righteous Guitars. <laughs> he, 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 knows, he knows Ben and buys his uh, stash from Ben like I do. <laughs> so I'll call Ben my crack dealer. Uh, oh, God. Because of the amount of gear that I have from him. Yeah, that's not I much of a joke. I quit any time I want. Yeah, and he's only three miles from my two miles and three miles from my office, which is really you know disgustingly convenient for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's another guy out there, and I don't know where he's located. Um, and he, and his uh, handle is called the Tone Junkie, and he makes a lot of really good. <laughs> seriously, and he makes a really good profile packages, and I would highly recommend checking his out. Um, and then there's another uh, individual called <laughs> Top Jimmy, spelled like Jimi Hendrix, G-I-M-I, 
Um, and I don't know what, what there comes from, but he has a lot of profiles also that are just really, really good AMP profiles that are just outstanding. Uh, and I own various profiles from all of these folks and from the keyboards and the G, uh, G4 software folks. And then I think I mentioned last time I'm a Logic Pro user because that's native to the Mac and I own Macs and the rest is history. Um, in terms of digital instruments, so there are, are a bunch of manufacturers who make, and these are the plugins I'm talking about that, that interface with Logic Pro or Pro Tools, and they have, you know, they have uh, echo units and um, power, you know, strips and control boxes and reverbs and flangers and, and all kinds of crazy stuff out there, and as well as amplifier type things. Um, the one that I really there's one that I own a boatload from, and that's a company called IK Multimedia, and I really, really like their stuff. I have their Jimmy, they have a Jimi Hendrix collection, which they really, literally went in there and sampled the amps from Hendrix that he used on different songs, and they have the amps and the settings he had on various songs. So they have like the lead, the intro to, to Wind Cries Mary and the lead solo guitar tone on on the, the lead part of that and the outro part. I mean, it's really cool how, they, how they've done that. It's it's pretty amazing, and that that was done in part, I think, in conjunction. Um, with Eddie Kramer, uh, Hendrix's engineer, uh, if I'm not mistaken. They also have a package called the Fender Collection, which has a lot of the old-school Fender amps, which is really, really cool. And they have a collection called the British Invasion, which, as you may guess, has a lot of the Vox and Marshall-like amps on there. Um, they have a thing called Amplitube, which has a boatload of different things, everything from Fenders to Oranges to Marshalls to... Uh, NGLs to um, bad cats to whatever on that thing. It's a it's a really kind of a mixed bag of things. The others are more specific to a specific genre or artist. Um, and you know they have a Brian May collection which I don't own, uh, and several they have a Slash collection. I mean they have a lot of good they, they put a lot of good stuff. Um, they have a tape machine collection which has all these old school like big tape machines I talked about, analog tape machines they've taken, and you can put them into your digital board and then run your stuff through those machines on post-production, and it gives them a kind of warm analog dilly. It's really cool how that works. Uh, they have a Hammond uh, collection, which has the B3s and the C3s and upright pianos and all kinds of stuff. It's really amazingly good. Uh, and the one, the other one that I really, really like that I have from them, which is a pretty pricey piece of gear, but it is worth every penny of it, is called the Miroslav Philharmonic, which is basically the Czech Republic's uh, orchestra. And it comes in like, I don't know, 30 CDs, and I'm not joking. And you have to load them all in. I mean, it's very... <laughs> It's very intensive, and it has all the cello sections, the horn sections, the timpanis, the, the string. I mean, it's, it is no joke. Uh, it's really, really good, uh, and I, I own that also. Uh, UA, Universal Audio, which also makes analog hardware. In fact, I have a lot of their hard. I love their hardware. The uh, interface that I'm using to connect to the radio show with is a Universal Audio uh, interface, and I have four or five of their preamps that I use and that I'm going to be using in the studio. They make really, really, really stellar stuff. They've been around forever and a day. They're, they're one of the original folks that have been doing analog forever and a day. But they also make um, plug-in 
things for uh, VST stuff type things. And they have one that's called the uh, Ampeg SVTVR, which is the uh, sampling of all the old school Ampeg bass amps, which is sort of the voice of rock of bass, whether you're, whether you're an R&B guy or a country guy or a rock guy or a metal guy or whatever. If you're a serious bass player and you're playing live, you have an Ampeg. Those things are just amazing. Well, they used to be. They're not made in America anymore. They're made in places I don't like amps being made. But I, I own actually several of their original uh, when they were still being made in St. Louis, and they are just nothing sounds as good as an Ampeg-based head, my personal opinion. Uh, they also make a, uh, <clears throat> a collection called the Marshall Plexi Collection, which uh, is really, really good that I also own. Um, Arturio, which makes a lot of different stuff. They make keyboard-type things. They make amp-type things. They make a wide variety of stuff, and I like their stuff a lot. Uh, they have a thing called the uh, Arturio Collection. I think they're up to a version 9 now. And uh, version 9 has just tons and tons of old-school keyboards, uh, synthesizers, uh, a lot of the uh, the old ARPs, like the 2600, they have the mini Moog, the multi Moog, the poly Moog, all, all the Moog stuff. They they have all the fan, uh, the Roland stuff. They have all the Yamaha DX7 stuff. They have all the Oberheim, a lot of the Oberheim stuff, and a lot of the Prophet sequential circuit stuff. And their stuff is really really good. And then they have a lot of bunch of weird. Uh, keyboards that keyboard players, which I am not. I mean, I, I fiddle around with keyboards, but I would never describe myself as a keyboardist. Um, but keyboard geeks probably know this stuff a whole lot more than I do. I mean, they have the Fairlight, which is one of the original um, digital sampling uh, machines that were that were made back in the 80s when uh, di- when digital keyboards first came out, and they have an emulation of the old Fairlight, and it's sound that the Fairlight's the keyboard. Um, that's on Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he makes all the the, the rip and all the weird sounds. That funky looking keyboard—that's a Fairlight that he's got on there. Uh, and somebody—they they have a thing. They have a, a, a thing of the Fairlight on there, and it's just—it's really cool. Um, and the other one is actually a company in Nashville. It's a fairly new company called KIT Plugins, and they have a bunch of. Um, mixer board type plugins like channel strip plugins and they have one that's just really I mean it is a it is an almost in indiscernible difference between that and one of the Neve channel strips. Uh it's called the Blackbird N one oh five V two and it it kicks ass and takes names. <laughs> it is really amazing. <laughs> it's 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 just an and it's it's like ninety nine dollars. I mean it's I'm like what? Oh. I mean it's crazy. It's crazy, crazy. Because if you could afford to get the Neve channel strip, that the channel strip is probably you know two grand or some crazy shit. I mean, the Neve stuff is unparalleled. That guy was a genius, just a freaking genius. Um, and somebody was telling me that the BBC has uh, a free uh, thing you can download. That's that's uh, a thing of their orchestra, the BBC orchestra, that you can download for free. Uh, that will plug into your stuff. And I, I haven't checked that out yet, but I'm going to go look into that because uh, that would be really, really cool. The mirror slot, if you have the mirror slot to harmonic, you've got everything you would ever need, ever. But, I mean, what the hell? If you're going to get a free, you know, a Mondo piece of free software, you know, go for it. I, I, it's my favorite four-letter word. It starts with F. Get your mind out of the gutter. Um, <laughs> um Yeah. So, anyway, those are my, those are my favorites. Yeah, thank you. 
Uh, it's like I get everybody in my other favorite four-letter word starts with S, and, and get your mind out of the gutter. It's sale. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, those are my favorites. I, I'm sure everybody has theirs that they like, and and you know stuff that they think is just a bomb. But I really, as you know, I'm a sound snob, and I have a really, if I do say so myself, I have an incredibly good ear, and some of these things. I literally, if I close my eyes and somebody had the real deal thing and were playing the plug-in, I couldn't, I don't know that I could tell the difference in all honesty. They are really, really, really good. And uh, for me to, to say that, they're really flipping good. Go check them out. If you're one of those kind of people, go check them out. They are really, really, really amazing. And once again, I have not been given any compensation from any of these companies or individuals to say this. So you heard it here first. There you go. All righty. Fantastic. Thank you for that. It's kind of one of those deep cut weird things that, you know, nerds like myself know. No. There you go. Hey, that's, that's why we're here. Yep, yep. All righty. So thank you very much for that. And sure. again, we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight little over a half hour. Uh, please feel free to give us a call if you'd like. Again, the number is 914-338-0314. All right, episode 129, Who Are You? How We Form Self-Identity. So tonight's topic deals with our self-identity, how it is formed, and why this matters. People often do not equally embrace all the labels that could apply to themselves either, and we'll talk about that. And tonight, we want to talk about the process of how we form a sense of our self-identity and how these choices and labels affect many aspects of our lives. We will discuss first, what is self-identity? You know, we all think we know, but let's just make sure we're on the same page. And why do we care so much about this? Then how do we get our sense of self-identity? Why do we choose the aspects that we do? And then diagnoses and problems with self-identity and conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. Before we get started, Dr. Mathis, is there anything that you would like to pop in here before we get going? Now let's get to it. Okay. So, what is self-identity and why do we care? Okay. The source for this first clip is from a website that we've used off and on called verywellmind.com. It's a mental health website. What is self-concept? And this is a related, it's just a terminology difference, really. Self-concept is how we perceive our behaviors, abilities, and unique characteristics. For example, beliefs such as, I am a good friend, or I am a kind person, are part of an overall self-concept. Our self-perception is important because it affects our motivations, attitudes, and behaviors. It also impacts how we feel about the person we think we are, including whether we are competent or if we have self-worth. Roger's three parts of self-concept. Humanist psychologist Carl Rogers believed that self-concept is made up of three different parts, and they are the ideal self. The ideal self is the person you want to be. 
this person has the attributes or qualities you're either working toward or want to possess. It's who you envision yourself to be if you were exactly as you wanted. So essentially goals. Self-image. Self-image refers to how you see yourself at this moment in time. Attributes like physical characteristics, personality traits, and social roles all impact your self-image. Self-esteem, slightly different. How much you like, accept, and value yourself all contribute to your self-concept in the form of self-esteem. Self-esteem can be impacted by a number of factors, including how others see you, how you think you compare to others, and your role in society. This next part is from an article in Psychology Today, and it's about identity. Also a related concept, just slight differences in terminology. Identity encompasses the memories, experiences, relationships, and values that create one's sense of self. This amalgamation creates a steady sense of who one is over time, even as new facets are developed and incorporated into one's identity. Everyone struggles with existential questions such as, who am I? I will not break out into song from Les Miserables because it's actually a song in the second act. (laughs) And who do I want my future self to be? One reason why may be that the answer is so complex. Identity includes the many relationships people cultivate, such as their identity as a child, friend, partner, and parent. It involves external characteristics over which a person may have little or no control, such as height, race, or socioeconomic class. Identity also, I have a small quibble. You you may have some control sometimes over your class, or you can change it. Uh, The other two you can't really change. Identity also encompasses political opinions, moral attitudes, and religious beliefs, or none, all of which guide the choices one makes on a daily basis. People who are overly concerned with the impression they make or who feel a core aspect of themselves, such as gender or sexuality, is not being expressed, can struggle acutely with their identity. Reflecting on the discrepancy between who one is and who one wants to be can be a powerful catalyst for change. Identity encompasses the values people hold, which dictate the choices they make. An identity containing multiple roles, such as mother, teacher, and U.S. citizen, and each role holds meaning and expectations that are internalized into one's identity. Identity continues to evolve over the course of an individual's life. Identity formation involves three key tasks, discovering and and developing one's potential, choosing one's purpose in life, and finding opportunities to exercise that potential and purpose. Identity is also influenced by parents and peers during childhood and experimentation in adolescence. This next chunk is from the source thalesgroup.com. It's T-H-A-L-E-S. Did you know that identity is actually a mathematical term? It belongs to the scientific theory of social mathematics, which was first studied in the late 18th century by French mathematician and philosopher Marie-Jean-Antoine-Nicolas de Caritat, Marquis de Condorcet. (laughs) 
That's a very long title, dude. Identity refers to the algebraic concept of equality among citizens in terms of their legal rights and obligations. Marquis de Condorcet, who became famous for the Condorcet paradox, came up with the term when studying the relationship between the individual and the collective as a way of formalizing the foundations of the democratic system. According to him, if a nation and or multiple individuals identically accept the rules of the community, they attain the status of citizens. However, identity has also come to express the differences between us. Simply speaking, identity is a combination of your physical and behavioral traits that define who you are. For example, your name is part of your identity, as is the form and color of your eyes and your fingerprint. This set of characteristics allows you to be definitively and uniquely recognizable. Identity plays an important role in empowering individuals to exercise their rights and responsibilities fairly and equitably in a modern society. It is imperative for social, economic, and digital inclusion as it provides access to basic human rights such as health care, pensions, social benefits, the ability to exercise our right to vote, and beyond. But to be able to access those rights, one needs to be able to prove that they are who they claim to be. I'm just double-checking real quick. There was a paragraph I thought was here, but I think it's going to be later on, so... We'll just keep going. Official identity as a proxy for inclusion. If a country's citizens don't have access to an official identity, they are very much more likely to miss out on a variety of essential services due to the fact that identity touches so many aspects of our lives. For citizens, identity provides them with access to state programs that support their well-being. As an example, Jamaica recently approved the use of biometric authentication systems to verify those citizens accessing social welfare benefits. All right, in conclusion, and this is me talking, this is not from a source. Identity and or a sense of a core self seems to fulfill at least most of several social, legal, or psychological functions for individuals. Uh, This is the paragraph I was looking for. Okay, good. Here we go. Being as this is a psychology-based show, we're going to omit the legal factors past what I discussed a minute ago because it was part of the story and focus on the social and psychological ones. Here are examples of several main groups by which we establish at least parts of our self-identity. And these are a mix of aspects that can be helped or chosen and some that you're just born with. First, ability and or health identity, being disabled or not, chronic health issues, being a fitness enthusiast, being on special diets, etc. And I'm, I'm just going to name aspects. Some of them have a little more conversation about them than others. Uh, age, people assume things about others based on known or assumed age. Some people actively enjoy thwarting the stereotypes. You know, like you, they know you're 70 years old, but you do a very creative and active thing and people get surprised, for example. Or the other way around, when you're a kid and you do something that's almost prodigy-like. You know, some people kind of get a kick out of that. Clubs and organizations, volunteers, lions, Ruritan, et cetera, fire and rescue, 
church or other religious outreach, book clubs, sports clubs, entertainment-based clubs, music, theater, etc., professional and fraternal clubs, masons, toastmasters, academic-based, etc., aid, advocacy, and resources groups, uh, running shelters, helping the homeless, emergency response, you know, like volunteers to get together when a house burns down, that sort of thing. Community improvement, like co-ops, gardening, local history, library programs, and so forth. These are all external voluntary entities by which some people derive some of their self-image. Education and academic ability. Where you went to school, how far you got, how much does it matter? Trade school versus college, your degrees, and what are they in? Learning disabilities, etc. Family, um, a sense of tribe or belonging. And I added a note that cannot be taken away, and that, that seems to be a little critical. Chosen associations can always be broken or betrayed, and unfortunately in many cases so can family ties. But a primal part of the human psyche is always looking for that one bond that's always there no matter what. This process is ongoing through our lives. We look for various labels to establish our place, amongst a bigger timeline of history, heritage, and community. Our family, our hometown, our first schools, our first friends. Many of us end up estranged from family or early groups that we affiliate with, but something in us usually retains the label in spite of it, unless an egregious and toxic break occurs, which is not unheard of, sadly. And at the end of our lives, which who is expected to deal with certain matters when we are gone? Um, that gets a little into the legal aspect of it, but we'll get into that another time if we need to. Next one is income level. Um, whether you hide yours or not, like if you have money but display frugally and plainly, or the other way around, whether you have high-end items or attire but you don't have the income that they assume, your chosen grooming, etc. Media and entertainment. We sometimes base some of our identity on books, TV shows, movies, comics, even songs or plays, and also on concepts promoted by both mainstream media, culture, and celebrity media, and social media. Neighborhood, urban, suburban, rural, historic, or historical area, metropolitan area versus small towns away from cities, Regional cultures such as being from the South or the Northeast or the Midwest or the West Coast, etc. Um, whether you're parents or not parents. Race, cultures of origin or genetic or bloodline identities. We place a lot of significance on our genetics, genealogy, and inherited ancestry, especially in the United States, where it is much more of a melting pot and many things are not assumed about our origins based on where we live or grew up, like Say, for example, if you're from Spain, most people would assume you have, you're either fully Spanish or at least have some Spanish in your ancestry and so forth. Whereas if you're in the United States, it could be Heinz 57. Who knows? All righty. Many of us look for ways to incorporate the cultural aspects from these answers into our current lives. Modes of dress, hair and makeup, music, language, and other cultural aspects are embraced to keep that tie or sense of identity. Relationship status, legal or only social. Related to 
uh, the point I just made. Uh, many in our society these days have become emboldened to share judgmental opinions about the relationship status of others, whether they're single, living together but unmarried, poly, consensually open, asexual, or just not interested, and other combinations outside the stereotypes. These are, there are assumptions that come with knowing your relationship status. Do you have free time? Are you looking for someone? Might you have kids soon? Uh, your level of job commitment, your income status, etc. Sexuality or gender. Many of us derive a sense of identity from either or both our sexuality and or our gender. Stereotypical U.S. culture continues to favor Caucasian, heterosexual, appearing, suburban, bi-gendered, meaning male or female, and nothing else. Protestant, family-based culture as an assumed default. If this is even partially not how we identify in some way, we tend to emphasize it even more so because the default assumption causes a cascade of other predecided responses to us which at best do not apply and at worst may come off as trying to erase us or force us to change. And last, social archetypes and stereotypical communities. Are you goth? Are you metal? Are you nerdy? Preppy? A jock? Or athletic person? Country? Cowboy person? Biker? Could be one percenter? Could be suburban bikers? Corporate person? Are you punky? Sloppy, proud, and don't care who minds. Trying to hide your body, um, being rumpled and kind of shamed acting. Um, That's, by the way, often a trauma response. Um, Do you dress skimpy or sexy? Do you look like a club goer? Uh, Are you alternative, kind of kinky, urban primitive? Fan of a sport or entertainment entity? Religious, political, etc. All of these Archetypes and communities and groups can be part of someone's identity. So why does all this matter so much? Established stereotypes and expectations give us examples of things we could choose for ourselves. For better or worse, they save time and come with already prepared expectations and assumptions. And let's talk about this process in a little more detail in the next section. I'm going to pause here and check with you, Dr. Mathis, to see if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, what I would say is they also um, give a sense of false belonging and, excuse me, a sense that a lot of people feel like they quote-unquote need when they don't really need it. And that's always a balance between being part of something and yet being separated from it and being your own person. That's sometimes a very tricky balance for us. But if you don't know who you are and you haven't established that identity, then that becomes impossible. And then you become enmeshed with whatever thing that seems most appropriate for you, which is not usually the greatest thing in, in the world for you to do. Got it. So I have a, a question for you about what you just said. Are, are sure. there times when people identify with some of these, at least, where if they identify with it, you, you mentioned a false sense of belonging, but is it possible to have a more authentic sense of belonging? Um, say a little bit more what you mean by that. Well, let's say, for example, somebody's kind of goth. And okay. you could you could say maybe somebody's dyeing their hair black and wearing the Susie and the Banshees makeup and doing the whole nine yards there. 
and maybe it's a a mask or it's a way of coping or okay. maybe maybe someone's actually really comfortable with that and they know that that appeals to them and they feel like that's part of their identity i mean can right. that be an authentic belonging is that possible yeah ab- yeah absolutely and one of the things that people uh, often talking about music um you know if people who knew and i and i don't claim to have known cuz i didn't uh but people who have known who claim to have known hendrix on a personal level you know, they said, you know, when you saw him dressed up with the hats and the flower shirts and kind of the, the hippie gypsy looking stuff, that that was how he dressed all the time. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to put this on my, as a stage persona. You know, somebody like Alice Cooper, for example, uh, who has a very separate identity on stage and a separate identity when he's not on stage. Um, Hendrix really, that was really who he was, evidently, was that gypsy sort of free-spirited kind of guy. Uh, and he was okay with that, and he authentic. It was authentic for him, and he did it. Uh, Ellis Cooper's clearly, and he talks about it clearly being a role he assumes or persona he assumes on stage, uh, and he's very comfortable with it. And then when he gets off stage, he's you know Vincent Fournier. <laughs> he's not Ellis yeah. Cooper, you know, uh, and he plays yeah. golf. In fact, one of my patients took a, a trip out to Arizona and was didn't realize that he was playing golf, and the guy that came behind him and said, hey, do you mind if we play through? And he goes, yeah, no problem. And his golf teacher goes, you know who that was, right? <laughs> and he oh, didn't. Oh, no. Huh? Which I thought was hilarious. Oh, that's yeah. marvelous. Yeah, that's cool. hilarious. Great story. Yeah, because he, he knows I'm an Alice Cooper guy, and he's like, oh, you'll never know who I, you never guess who I met in Arizona. Except yeah, that I didn't know I met. I was golfing with. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. It's also possible to belong to separate different groups, uh, sometimes apparently in contradiction with each other. For example, um, if you take, uh, you know, and I hate to say this, but if you take me for an example, which, you know, please, let's not do that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I clearly identify and I'm proud of being a musician. But I also clearly identify and am proud of being straight edge and have been since day one. I've never been drunk. I've never been stoned, ever have no desire to do it. And I think people who do it are morons. And no offense to you druggy folks out there. I just think you're, you're, you're screwing yourself. I don't think less of you as a person. I just think you're being self-defeating. Um, and I'm not criticizing you in that regard. But that's a very much a what, because people see you and they, they assume, and particularly me with the hair and all, they make assumptions, right? When they walk into my office and they hear the word doctor, they expect to say, see some guy in very short hair and very neatly dressed. And while I often look like a doctor from the neck down, um, not so much from the neck up. (laughs) 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 Right. And a lot of people walk in and they expect to see the short hair and the the very contrite personality and they get just the opposite. And they're like, okay. And you can see the cognitive dissonance in their eyes. It's like, wait a minute, does not compute. And then they get all scared that they're bringing their kid in who might be a drug user or whatever, and then I'm going to somehow say, yeah, dude, like, it's cool. You can just, like, get stoned and stuff, <laughs> you know. And, and the kid comes into my office, and, of course, I have an amp and guitars and all in there. And, of course, they're thinking, oh, this guy's going to be cool, and he does drugs and stuff. And then they figure out that I'm really this boring nerd that just has a shit ton of degrees but likes long hair and cool music. So it's it's interesting 
how people get stereotypes looking at me and then you know, the, the parents will come into my office and they'll see the tons of degrees and certifications and licenses on the wall. And again, you see this, this next level of, huh? <laughs> right? Because they can't reconcile the two identities that they have in their head of what a musician is supposed to be and what a doctor is supposed to be. And I clearly fall into both camps, but I'm not really a quote unquote normal doctor uh, or a, I'm not normal anything, let's be honest, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to let you, you say know, that one. I'm staying out of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, what you going to do, right? You're just a weirdo. Uh, yeah. you know, and I like being kind of a weirdo, and I didn't like it as a kid. But I, I sort of revel in my nerdness and my compulsivity and my drug cleanness, but I also revel in my iconoclasty and my, you know, kind of, FU statement to tradition, some of the traditional stuff and my kind of rebellious, you know, rebel, rebel sort of kind of thing. So it's just, it's interesting, yeah. right? It's just kind of weird identity thing for me. Um, but I think people can, if, if they're clever and balance it well, you can have a number of identities. I identify as a cook. I would never describe myself as a chef because I'm not trained. Um, I'm really kind of a mad scientist because I have all this, you know, chemistry and biochemistry background. So I'm <laughs> I, do, I really do. I joke, I joke about me being a mad scientist in the kitchen, yeah. right? So I, there's I another... Scorch marks in your kitchen. <laughs> right, and there's another stereotype, right? Mad scientist, right? Yeah. It's just interesting how we do that. And, and then we have all these behavioral and emotional and intellectual uh, traits and qualities and affectations that we ascribe to people that we put in this, these little boxes. Uh, and then when they don't, live up to them, we don't know what to do with them. And, you know, shame on us. And I'm guilty of this, too. It's not like I, you know, I'm immune from this. Uh, you know, shame on me and everybody else for doing it when we do it. And I, it, it was funny because, and I'll, I'll, I'll shut up after this, one of the last uh, thing, <laughs> examples I want to talk about is when, when I went out to my new place that I'm going to be moving to and we were looking at land, uh, I took Seth with me, my, my buddy, because what I know about construction and all that, you know, technical stuff that's on the head of the pen. And he's like the bomb of that stuff. So I took him out there with me and, you know, he, he's riding around with me looking at properties and stuff. And then uh, at some point he said, you know, you're going to get this. I'm just going to stay here and start, you know, measuring stuff and flying the drone and looking at elevations and stuff. And you go look at the other properties because I I know your compulsivity is not going to allow you just to blow them off. I'm like, yep, you got that right. So I was riding in the car with Toby, the real estate agent who I've become really good friends with. And I knew Toby was just, because he kept like, so how do you know Seth, right? And, he keep, and I knew what he was thinking, right? And I said, let me just put your, let me just clarify our relationship. Seth and I are friends. We're not friends with benefits. <laughs> yeah. you know. and, and there was this little embarrassed look for a minute on his face like, oh, shit, he, he found me out. You know, like he knew what I was thinking. Right. It was funny because you see two guys hanging around and they're traveling together and they're acting really friendly. And you're like, hmm, I wonder if, you know, um, and I go, it's the compulsive thing, Toby. When you're when you're a compulsive guy, you put people in boxes and you don't mix the boxes up. And he kind of looked at me funny. I said, if you are a sexual partner, you're not a friend. You're not a business partner. You're a sexual partner. Sexual partners and friends are are separate boxes. Compulsive people do not mix their boxes. Mixing boxes is by a kind. He started laughing. Well, but it's true. I, I don't mix I boxes. Can. 
you know, yeah. and that's part of me being OCS because I don't mix my boxes. You know, if you're a friend, I'm not, you know, I'm not dabbling my dillies in your box. <laughs> you know, I'm just not doing <laughs> Oh, my it. God. Uh, oh, I should have marked it, this show R. I didn't think about it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Okay. Yeah, it is, but it's just funny but because, you know, people make these assumptions, and I, I felt this need to clarify that, and it's not that I would give a flip if we were, uh, or I would, or I have a problem with people who do that. It's just I don't do that, and it was really important for me to let Toby know I don't do that because part of my identity is this compulsive guy, and com- you know I'd lose my compulsive card if I cross my boxes, right? Uh, no. it's, it's interesting but how for we the do record, that. he didn't cross the boxes. Just so y'all know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I did not put my willy in his dilly. <laughs> oh. Oh, one of the times I was so grateful that you mix up your nouns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think you can do. I think you can absolutely be authentic, and look like somebody who might be, if you will, putting on a front like Hendrix or whatever. But you're not. That's just yeah. who you are. It's just like me with the long hair. That's who I am. I love it. It's part of my identity. Um, I, you know, I do it, as you know, I do it when I go into courtroom, I don't put it in a ponytail, I don't stick it under, I don't grease it down and stick it under a hat or stick it under my clothes. I mean, I, I wear it like a flag I want, but part of that is my identity as an iconoclast. So it's this weird mixture for me. And I think if people are true to themselves and they start to take time to find out who they are and to revel in who they are, they can do the same thing I do. I'm not doing anything special or, or unique in that regard. Everybody's capable of doing that. But to do that, you have to know who the heck you are. You have to be okay with who you are. And you have to be okay with being rejected by yes. being who you are. And that's yes. really difficult for people. And it was really hard for me as a kid. I wanted to be normal so badly as a kid, and I just sucked so badly at it. That it just, yeah. I finally just gave up and said, you know what, I'm just going to be weird and just screw it. And I had to because otherwise I would have been an authentic. Yeah. You know. And you know that that's actually part of someone's identity as well. Like, are you secure in your answers enough to push back in that way? And some people are not; they're not ready. Yeah, and the other thing is, you have to not. And I struggle with this sometimes. I, you know, you have to not be offensive if you're a person who is different than other folks, as I often find myself. It's very important for me to remind myself about boundaries. Yeah. And being respectful of other people's stuff. And you know, it's like I tell most of my, my patients, particularly my adolescents and young adults who are struggling with how do I balance this, you know, and I certainly did, um, it is if you want other people to respect you, you have to respect them and who they are, whether you like who they are, the identity of who they are or not, or whether you think that they're being whatever, you still have to respect it, and you still can't step on that parade if you want them to respect your stuff. And that's a really important concept to, to internalize. Yeah. yeah, your self-identity is not a bludgeon. Right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and no, it's not I, a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? No, also that, yeah. Right. All righty, so let's go ahead and go on to the next section. Um so how do we get our sense of a self-identity and why do we choose the aspects that we do? All right. Our sense of self, self-identity, once it starts to form, governs assumptions we make about ourselves, our place in society and the world, and the formation of boundaries and standards of how we expect others to treat us. 
We may even abandon some aspects of our identity if the feedback or assumptions we frequently get is in some way unacceptable. Some identities tend to be afforded more respect or allowed, encouraged to be in authority or leadership. It buys us power and agency over our own lives. And like you mentioned earlier, this is a balancing act. You know, you have to pick which yeah. hills do you want to die on here. Also, yeah. whether we can, we can be trusted or are mutual to others can become a matter of quality of life. Almost none of us can live alone completely in a vacuum. And to, so some level of the approval of others is needed to buy aid or cooperation, even if it's a limited basis. Right. You know, like you said, you, you went out on a trip to see your uh, new home and brought somebody with you who knows about those things because you can't know all the things. I mean, I mean you have a computer. We know this now. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, you know, there are so many things I don't know. It's, like, disgusting. But, (laughs) you know, I always tell people I know people who know a lot more than I do about the stuff I know nothing about. And the good news is I know what I don't know, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. And I'm perfectly okay with that, (laughs) you know. Yep. All right, let me continue. Um, Also, peace of mind and a comfy, authentic sense of self is critical for mental health. There are dysphorias of many sorts that can be quite upsetting and make those that have them feel trapped. Or trying to maintain an identity to the world that's not authentic is exhausting and upsetting and eventually, like all lies, is all likely to unravel at a really bad moment. So we don't really have the personal bandwidth to agonize over questions like this on a frequent basis. So the sooner we find peace of mind in knowing ourselves, the better we can cope with daily life. And I'm going to check in here and see if there's anything you want to add. Uh, I just want to talk about a resource that people might want to use that may they may be unaware of. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There is a book that I often recommend to folks with identity uh, issues. Uh, and, again, I bought this book. I haven't been paid to, to advertise it or whatever, um, although I probably should, should as often as I refer it. It's, it's a book called Soul Catcher. Uh, and it's written by a mother and daughter team, uh, and I think it came, if I remember the story correctly, it came out of the loss of the mother's son and the sister's brother, obviously. And I can't remember if it was suicide or illness. I can't remember what it was, but I know it was a person who died young, and it was a big, big issue for them, and uh, kind of created an identity crisis. And they have this book that they came out of it called Soul Catcher that's really awesome. It has a lot of exercises in it, and I would really recommend it to people who are having identity issues or trying to find out who the heck they are. It's just a really well-crafted, step-by-step kind of workbooky kind of thing that takes you through a lot of stuff, and I just I find it really helpful with my folks. Um, so I would, I would encourage listeners who don't uh, know who they are or who are struggling with that or just want some extra help to go out and check it out. It's really good called Soul Catcher. I think it's by Katie and somebody Eldon. Uh, I can't remember names because Mr. Ain't Know Me a Boy over here. But uh, <laughs> it's it's really good. I'd really recommend it to folks. It's, it's a great book, great resource. Yep. And, and if you guys are looking for it later, just message the page and we can dig up the information for you. I'll look it up and email you the, the ISBN and all that stuff. And then it, Okay, and then I can post that up there in case yeah, anybody's looking great. for it later on. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. 
let's go ahead and go to the next part, diagnoses and problems with self-identity. And I'm just going to bring these up. I'm not getting into a long, protracted discussion about these in detail. Um, first is delusions about the reality of ourselves. So some people have pathological issues, such as many of the diagnoses under cluster B uh, that prevent their realistic understanding of themselves. And also, is it cluster A, the one that's like out of touch with the reality? Is that that one? Yeah, yeah I think cluster touch? B is the aliens, that's the schizotypals and the, the yeah. you know, the kind they of the... They also have... Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but your average person who's more neurotypical should at least mostly understand reality about themselves. You know, even if they know the reality, but they don't like it, they kind of know it's there. Um, another issue is some of us present as other false labels and having to struggle with wrong assumptions about ourselves. Like, you know, you may kind of look like Robert Plant in a suit and people don't really know what to label you and then they don't know how to react. And there's mm-hmm. lots and lots of aspects that this is true for. You may appear very corporate, but maybe you're very punky or all kinds of other stuff. Um, certain aspects of our identity being an impediment to a goal, such as uh, getting relationships, uh, certain kinds of jobs, etc. And some concepts of self can be voluntarily changed by choice. And some that cannot, such as your age or having a disability, Uh, We can find new ways to cope with them that work better for us. It depends on our willingness to release or stop living out of a label under our control or to work on how we cope with the labels we cannot change. And I'm going to check in with you one more time to see if there's anything you want to add here. No, I'm good. Thanks. Okay. So basically, in summary, we hope now that our listeners better understand how we form and maintain our sense of self and how that affects so many dealings in our daily lives. We also hope you better understand how to change the labels that seem false or are in your way. So uh, it's around midnight, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. This concludes our show on how we form self-identity. Dr. Mathis, I'll check in with you one last time, see if there's anything we missed that you wanted to bring up. No, all I'll say is if if you're having trouble with this, go check out the... uh soul catcher and you know if that doesn't do it for you or you're having trouble going through it find a mental health professional in your area and consult with him or her and you know let them walk you through that because uh, they can certainly give assistance in that regard okay that's very good advice um, actually speaking along the lines of that um, since you are about ready to launch or move at some point soon are you going to be pausing your online appointments that you were doing I hope no, not. <laughs> it, it I don't sort know if of depends. A lot involved in I mean that no, I mean that's a really good question. Um it really depends on my connectivity out there which to some degree depends on when I move out there because there's a lot of uh factors that are contingent on when I move. If I move out there when I'm supposed to move out there tentatively, which is end of September, first part of October, um there shouldn't be an issue. If I have to move out there prematurely and I'm, you know, living hand to mouth with whomever, uh, who's, you know, <laughs> alms for the poor, you know, uh, uh, you know, un, uh, unhoused shrink person, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, it depends on what kind of connectivity they have. Uh, yep. And 
you know, the earliest I would move out there, I imagine, would be the end of July. The latest would be the first end of September, first part of October. So if, if I go with the original plan, probably not. If I do the holy moly, I've got to move out there sooner than I thought plan, uh, I don't know. Uh, but I will certainly keep you updated on that. The other component is um, whether, we're, you know, what kind of connectivity I'm going to have um on the land, um, because initially yeah. when we had talked with people, um, Seth had talked to folks about connecting to the um, um, fiber optic stuff then. They were like, oh, yeah, no problem. And then they went, well, uh, we don't know about that. Uh, I'm like, okay, guys, make your freaking mind up. So that's kind of up for grabs. So I just, I mean, I just don't know at this point how much of a deal that's going to be. Um, I think that that will be able to be worked out, but, you know, um I'll know more as time goes by, and I get there, and I'll find out, and I'll yeah. keep you in the loop. Yeah, so we'll, we'll keep you guys informed as to availability, and I'm sure if there's any hiccups that they're going to be temporary, just a matter of figuring out the dates and so on. Yeah, one would hope. <laughs> okay, yes, yeah, not going to laminate. There we go. Okay, so go. on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, I want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation also to those of you who may be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, etc. So we'll see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion Wednesday, May 25th at 11 p.m. right here on blogtalkradio.com. We'd also like to give a shout out to other NDB Media shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Tomorrow night, Travelage Radio, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. History lives off the Maine coast, and that's the state of Maine, where a fleet of Maine windjammers sail from port to port, visiting small towns, enjoying lobster breaks on private islands, and introducing 21st century travelers to 19th century sailing conditions. Learn more on Travelage Radio when Tyler King, captain of the schooner American Eagle, talks with Dan Schlossberg and Mary Ellen Nugent Lane. A member of the Maine Windjammer Association, Captain Lee will explain what a windjammer is and why it provides such a memorable vacation. All righty. Next part. Um, Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. The Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning. That's hosted on StreamYard. Check the NDB Media page on Facebook for links and times. Sunday the 15th. 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, The Fear of the Walking Dead, Online Viewing Party, Season 7, Episode 13, The Raft. Official AMC synopsis, Morgan and Alicia plan their next steps. Dwight and Sherry face the prospect of having to choose between their code and their safety, and I am hosting that. Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega at 10 p.m. Roger Dean Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history. Currently also hosted on StreamYard. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Fandom Access Week in Review. Join the entertainment explosion of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they digest another night of TV. Last week's agenda included Dr. Strange, The Multiverse of Madness, Fear the Walking Dead, Moon Knight, The Wilds, and Star Trek Picard, and Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Please look for The Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. Rock on.
Thank you.